to open up our time, I'll be reading from Romans 1, starting in verse 18, reading through verse 23, if you'd like to turn there. Starting in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. That's the reading of God's holy word. I'd like you to keep those words in the back of your mind as we today look through evolution, look through what is being taught currently in schools. Keep that in the back of your mind, suppressing the truth in their unrighteousness, claiming to be wise and becoming fools, rejecting the wisdom and the glory of God for their own creation. Now as we start, we're going to be fully diving into evolution, what's being taught, what I've been taught in school and college First, let's look at the six aspects, kind of the six realms that evolution would need to cover. First, you have cosmic evolution, which is the origin of time, space, matter. Evolution needs to answer these questions, needs to answer where the origin of all these things came from, where time came from, where space came from, and where matter, where everything that makes up our world came from. Secondly, they would need to explain chemical evolution, the origin and evolution of all the elements that are present in the world today. How do you get all the elements that are on the periodic table? How did evolution cause this to occur? Third, you have stellar and planetary evolution, which is the origin of the stars and the planets. We have such a vast solar system. Our own is so complex among the millions of others, and you have trillions of stars that are present that have been observed in our universe. How does evolution account for these? And these last three are what we're going to be focusing on today. Organic evolution, the origin of life, the origin of plants, animals, humans. Next, macroevolution, which is the changing of one kind or species of plants or animals into a different species or kind. And lastly, microevolution, which is simply variation within kinds. Now, I think microevolution can be seen and is observed. So, we'll be looking through those three organic, macro, and micro evolution today. Now, some people may ask why evolution is so crucial, so vital to science, to biology. Why can't we just teach biology apart or separated from the theory of evolution, just have evolution be a topic, be a week of subject of some theory in science? Well, biology and science have been so tightly bound to evolution. If we look at, bring up a few quotes first from a Ukrainian geneticist and biologist, Theodos Dobozhansky, where he says, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. And another one from Neil deGrasse Tyson, who is an astrophysicist, where he says, the theory of evolution, like the theory of gravity, is a scientific fact. Now, in my college classroom, these quotes were what, how they led off our subject of evolution, how they started when we started talking about evolution, these were the quotes that they gave of why evolution is so critical and so crucial 
to biology. They've been so tightly bound that biology now, in a secular sense, cannot be taught apart from evolution and on a whole science itself, where I think you could teach biology, you could teach science from the Bible, from a biblical standpoint, but as our secular world has determined it now, it is only taught through a lens of evolution. Now let's define what they mean by evolution, make sure we know that we're addressing the proper issue. We don't want to be straw manning or making up false arguments to argue against. Rather, let's look at how evolution is defined as they make it. Now they would define evolution as a change in the allele frequency in a population over time. If you look at the graphic up there, for example, you have the different colored dots representing different alleles, different genetic variations. And they would say that this is evolution taking place. You see there's more red dots than yellow, green, or blue. This is evolution right here, changing an allele, an allele frequency in a certain population over the course of time. Now, sure, this definition of evolution does happen. It does occur. We do see in animals and species the changing of allele frequency over time. But I don't think this accounts for changes in kinds or changes from one species to another. Now next, let's look at the four mechanisms that cause evolution to occur, the four mechanisms of evolution. First, there is natural selection, which is some certain trait, some allele being more favorable to survival than another. You have gene flow, which is when one population group is introduced to another population, introducing new alleles new variants into the genetic pool. You have mutations, which is over time the changing and mutating of genes, the changing of DNA randomly. Then lastly, you have genetic drift, which is the opposite of gene flow. It occurs when some gene is taken out of the population through one event or another. Now, I'll be breaking down each of these in depth. As, these say, as the evolution would say, these are what cause evolution to occur. First, we have natural selection. Now, there are five things that cause natural selection to occur. You have, first, overproduction, which equates to a limited resources for a population group. You have variation within that population. You have competition for those limited resources. And then you have some ad adaptive advantage for some based on their variation. And finally, you have the reproduction of those who survive that had that adaptive advantage. Now, the example that I was shown in our classroom was acorn and acorn trees, where they saw some seeds would fall outside of the sunlight, sunlight being a limited resource, being limited by some of the other trees, for example. So as the seeds were spread out, there was then competition for this resource, variation, and how they got spread out, determined by one factor or another. And then those trees eventually reproduced, causing the cycle to continue over and over. Now this is seen. Natural selection does happen. Another example I'll give, and that's often given, is polar bears. They would say that polar bears may have originated from brown or black bears, who, because of overpopulation, moved to find other resources for food. Maybe they went north, went to more ice-covered ice tundras. So as random mutation would occur, maybe polar, the bears that had lighter colored coats 
were able to camouflage better with the ice, allowing them to hunt more efficiently. Maybe another factor could be the type of paws that they had. Maybe they had a rougher paw, allowing them to grip the ice better, again, hunting better, to allow them to reproduce and survive. Again, this is another example that is very plausible. That could happen. We do see animals that have some physical advantage, being able to hunt better, get more food, and then reproduce. But again, this does not account for how animals or species can go from one to another. You have a brown bear and a polar bear. They're both bears. They are not making a different animal. Next, we have gene flow. Now, gene flow is when a population with a certain allele variant enters a population that does not contain or have that variant. An example that's often given is if you have two populations of deer that are separated by a vast mountain range and there's a pass in the middle. Now, one group of the deer all has darker colored coats and another group of the deer has lighter colored coats. And as the deer pass across the mountains, now this darker coat is introduced with these deer that have a lighter coat or vice versa. Now, this doesn't necessarily produce evolution as they would claim. Rather, it just increases the genetic variation within a population, which is essential to evolution, for evolution to take place. Without this variation in genetics, then there's no room for some adaptive advantage over others. So that's all that gene flow provides is this increase in genetic variation within a population. Next, we look at genetic drift, which is the opposite of gene flow. Rather than a gene being introduced to a population, they are removed. Often the example given is a bottlenecking event of some sort where you have that original population, which is within that bottle. And then as that bottle gets poured out, some are left behind, and the surviving population then has a diminished or smaller gene pool. An example that's often given is the American bison, which today they have little genetic variation as a result of being hunted in the 19th century to near extinction. So now they have a much limited, much smaller genetic variation. Now this would be cause, again, not directly linking to evolution, but rather a way that it happens, or some effect of it by having a smaller gene pool. It has the opposite effect of gene flow. Lastly, we have genetic mutation, or DNA mutation, which is simply when the genetic or DNA code is changed out, swapped out, Either parts are deleted, removed, some parts may be inserted, and sometimes substitution takes place. I won't go into extreme depths in DNA mutation and DNA sequencing. But this is how they would say that random changes happen. You have some genetic mutation, some change in DNA, which then allows for some adaptive advantage to then allow them to reproduce, and then that gene stays in the gene pool for them to produce more and more. But again, as we look through all of these examples, I want you to take note as what's happening here. They take small examples that can be proven and are seen, but this does not give reason to believe that a full evolution has taken place, that macroevolution has occurred, that we have gone from one species or one kind to another. I believe all these do take place, but rather as God's word says in Genesis in the creation, each will produce after their own kind not one kind to another kind. So now we have, so that's, now up next is 
how they would say the origin, the organic evolution happens, the, where everything started. Now they didn't give, one won't look at the complete origin of evolution, rather we'll look at the organic evolution where biomolecules came from, where life originated from and how it originated. Now there are four types of biomolecules. You have carbohydrates, nucleic acids, lipids, and proteins. Nucleic acids being our DNA. Lipids, mainly, they have a lot of function, but the main function we'll look at in biological molecules is their function as cell membranes. Carbohydrates are a combination of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, or carbon and water. Molecules are what makes up carbohydrates. And then lastly, there's proteins. So let's look at where they would say these all originated from. They've many... Many experiments have been done trying to prove this theory, prove how this is done. The first one we'll look at is an experiment that was done in, 19, in the 1950s, and then it was redone in 2008. And what this did was show the formation of amino acids in the primitive Earth conditions, as they would have defined it. Now, the importance of amino acids being able to form randomly would be because amino acids are what make up proteins, so what able to perform functions within things. So the importance of seeing that amino acids are able to form by chance, by random, would give cause for evolution to possibly take place at the beginning of the Earth. So what they did in this experiment, they filled a chamber with water, hydrogen, nitrogen, ammonia, methane, and they provided electrical sparks which simulated lightning, as they would say. In the result, they saw that this would somehow form amino acids, start forming these things. So they would say that what that chamber would represent the initial conditions of the Earth, the primitive Earth conditions. Now the question still remains where those came from. Where did the water, the hydrogen, the nitrogen, ammonia, and methane originate from? They don't have an explanation for that. Rather, they just say, well, these were there as a result of the Big Bang or some other reason. But we can show that amino acids can form if these are all in the right conditions. Now let's look at amino acids for a short second. This is my chemistry tangent. My, I love chemistry. Now amino acids are made up of a base chain. You have carbon, oxygen, another oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, NH3, and some functional R group. Now, this functional R group is what makes up the 20 essential amino acids. There are a few others, but mainly what's focused on is the 20 essential amino acids. Now, this molecule is the perfect molecule to make up life, the perfect molecule to perform all the functions. You have the negative charge on an oxygen, a positive charge, on the nitrogen. I won't go too in-depth into the chemistry there, but this allows for this block to be replicated and bound to itself. This oxygen could bind to the nitrogen of another amino acid and vice versa. And with different functional R groups, this is how proteins are constructed, how they are made. Now, these R groups are made up of things that are polar, nonpolar, charged positively or negatively. And these difference in charge polarity is what causes them to be functional, what causes proteins 
to form, to shape, and be functional. The chemistry here is quite fascinating, how exact and how perfect of a building block this is. My biochemistry teacher even said that this was perfect. That's how, be- how beautiful it is that nature came up with this building block for life. And I would say, nature can't come up with this. Nature can't design itself with such intricate and perfect design. Only a perfect creator, only God, can make such a design as this. Such a design that is perfectly suitable for life on earth. Now, next in the evolution's step, after they've done the experiment to form amino acids from what they would say existed in a primitive earth, Next, they would show how DNA or could be constructed. Now, through research, they were able to find this ribosome, a type of protein that was able to form its own RNA. It was able to cut pieces out of the RNA, put pieces into the RNA. This isn't normally seen in single-celled organisms, rather only in multi-celled organisms. But they were able to observe this and say, ah, this could be the origin of DNA. This could be the origin of nucleic acids. This is where it could have come from. So then in the lab, they performed this experiment, which they deemed to be directed evolution. They took a strand of DNA, they incurred mutations among it, then put that mutated DNA into enzymes, into a bacteria that produced these enzymes, and then they filtered out these enzymes for the ones that were the most functional, that were able to replicate the DNA, or sorry, replicate the RNA the fastest, and they discarded the ones that were non-functional or not as optimized, and they kept redoing this process over and over and over. They were eventually able to get this enzyme to produce 700 times faster than the original ribosome that they found. Now, they would say, ah, we only did this in a lab, but this could surely happen in nature. Surely random mutations could happen, and the strong mutations would survive, and the worser mutations would be discarded, allowing for RNA to be rapidly produced. Now again, the question of origin comes back into play. Where did this ribosome come from? Where did it originate? Again, back to how nucleic acids were formed. Where did all of the elements come into play? How did those come into being, into existence, to be functional in this way? As well, this experiment done in the lab had perfect conditions. The scientists themselves were the ones that picked out the right ones and discarded the ones that were not as optimized. They were the ones that incurred the mutations to happen in certain ways. So I don't think that would be indicative of what could happen in nature. Now next, the formation of life is the next thing that they addressed. And that is with these, what they call, what we referred to as the lipids earlier, which make up cell membranes. Now you have a phospholipid is a certain type of lipid And lipids are normally made up of a long fatty acid chain, normally made up of carbon, something very bulky. And then at the top, you have acids. And for a phospholipid, you have a phosphate group on the top. Now, these are able to form vesicles, which are very similar to cell membranes. So the cells that make up every living being, every living thing, has this phospholipid layer around each of their cells. Now, they were able to observe in a lab that these vesicles could surround certain things, such as RNA, and contain this RNA within their vesicle, storing this information. Now, they deemed this 
to basically be life at the very base standard. Now, they came to that as defining life as growth and reproduction. Now, so they were able to see through other experiments, other tests, that certain conditions would allow for these vesicles to grow and then for them to eventually split up into two smaller ones. In the next slide, you can see this is how they laid it out. They said that three billion years ago, there were these vesicles that existed in these pools of water where the RNA that was randomly made from the nucleic acids that were also randomly made. And then through certain conditions, through certain things in the water, the vesicle grew larger and larger and larger, then split into two smaller vesicles as some of the RNA would leak out, and then new vesicles would form around the free RNA. And then this process would repeat over and over and over. And they say this is proof of life, of organic evolution, the origins of life. We've done it in a lab. Again, the question still remains, where did all these come from? Where did they originate from? How are they able to structure themselves so? How does the chemistry work within them to produce this as such? Because biology and chemistry are very closely tied together with, in biology, it's more looking at a bit more larger scale, though still very small, a bit larger than chemistry. Chemistry ultimately comes down to how molecules and atoms interact with each other. Chemistry is so specific, I'll bring up another example here. One thing that is used, though it's not super closely tied to biology, is double-bonded molecules. Now, there are two types. You can have cis molecules, which will have a functional group on the same side of the double bond as such. There's also trans double-bonded molecules, which have this R functional group on opposite sides. Now, what's fascinating is this, such a small change, made up of the exact same molecules, exact same elements, exact same structure, other than this flipping of the functional groups, has vast changes to the chemistry. Changes a lot of how chemical reactions happen, changes how structures are made, how polymers form, how polymers interact with each other and function. There are large differences made by even such a small change here. Again, the evolutionist must answer how such small changes could not have caused mistakes along the evolutionary line. How when the chemistry is so specific, so exact, how nature decided to form this way randomly through random chance. And their answer would be just to give, give it more time. As more and more time, well, you have more and more iterations, more and more random chance, it eventually came to the conclusion that we have now. Again, I think this is more of a religion than how a creationist would think, where we look at the evidence that we see in the world, we look at what's around us, where the evolutionists would say, well, we think something happened billions of years ago which can't be observed. We think that these things happened, that life formed in this way, this process, though we can somewhat replicate it in a lab, we can't directly observe it. That sounds as much as religion as we believe. So then the question does come down to it. Is it true? 
Is what they're able to replicate in the lab, is that how life formed? Is this truly the origin of everything, is how they've described it, how they've laid it out to be? Or could it be that God has made the earth, that he has made it in the way that he's made it with us to be able to reason and find out? Again, I go back to the text we looked at at the beginning. Where they became, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. I can't think of a better example of this verse than scientists taking hours and hours and hours in a lab trying to replicate their theory to suppress the truth of God in their own unrighteousness. They claim to be wise, but they make themselves fools by the amount of research that they do, trying to prop up their religion so that they can obey their own rules and not have to submit to a God and creator. Now again, I'll do another small chemistry tangent to finish off. A big place of research in chemistry is synthesis or catalysis, which is doing reactions and trying to find ways to form these reactions better, faster, through the use of catalysis. It is able to lower the activation energy, which in short term would mean the reactions can happen faster. You can produce and have these reactions occur faster, being able to make polymers and proteins and all these things happen much, much faster. Now, nature has its own type of catalysts. They have what's called enzymes or a biological catalyst that allows for reactions within cells, within biological organisms. It's how their reactions happen, how life basically exists, is through these enzymes that nature uses, through the, catal the catalysts of nature. Now, no catalyst that's been made by humans in a lab is anywhere close to as efficient as natural enzymes, natural catalysts. I think this is because God's creation, God's order, is more perfected, is better, and more efficient than anything we could create. God is the creator. He set up the rules of chemistry. He set up all the scientific laws. We can merely study them, get to know them better, but we can't replicate them. We can't make them our own or make a better version of what God has made. So in closing, again, I want to ask you, I've only covered a brief section of what the evolution teaches, and then surely there's other variants, other ways that it is taught, but this is, I think, a major way as a lot of, that a lot would be taught in a similar way as what I have described to you. The question remains is what they say true. Is this the truth? Have they truly replicated in the lab what's happened, what they claim to happened millions and billions of years ago? Or is God's word true? Did he create the earth? Did he give it order and function and form? Has he given us purpose? Has he given life purpose, the purpose of glorifying him? Or is life meaningless without purpose? Are we all a cause of random chance? So again, I ask you to ponder that as you go on with our lives with hopefully the information that you have learned over these past few weeks. Again, I ask that you don't spend too much time in conversation on evolution and creation through about the flood, though it is very interesting. Don't let conversation about that overtake our conversations of the gospel. The saving work of Christ on the cross to make a propitiation for sinners, to come to, our, to, come to God the Father, paying our debt, paying our sin debt that we have occurred. Don't let this talk of evolution and creation get in the way of that. Rather, let it hasten us 
to talk about that. May it be a highway to talk about the gospel. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for the time you have given us, Lord, to study your, your world, Lord, to look at what you have given us, the beautiful creation you have that glorifies you, Lord. I pray that we may study your creation, Lord, and most of all, study your word, study your gospel, Lord, to bring more glory and more honor to you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.